to read the first seven verses of Romans 13. Please follow along as I read. The Bible says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. May God bless his word. Let's bow in prayer. Our God, we come before you again so grateful uh, for America. And we are so grateful for the freedoms that we enjoy. We know that freedom is not free. Father, we are so grateful for all those that have, have made the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be doing what we're doing uh, all across America, pulpits throughout this land, where we are proclaiming the word of God uh, with no fear of government reprisal. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to take advantage of our freedoms and liberties uh, in, in this country. And I pray, Father, that we would boldly proclaim your gospel. And thank you again. Thank you for this country. Thank you, Father, for especially for our Savior and especially for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ secured by his shed blood. And I pray that you would bless us today in our worship. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. As most of you, if not all of you know, tomorrow is Memorial Day. And uh, Memorial Day was established to honor those who have died. And so the title of my message today is Those Who Have Died. But we're not just honoring everyone that's died, uh, but specifically Memorial Day is honoring those who have died in America's wars. And I want to talk about that very concept. In fact, it began uh, really from America's Civil War back in the 1860s uh, when um, Lee surrendered at Appomattox. Uh, they, very shortly after the surrender, uh, the women, both of the North and South, began to decorate the tombs of those who had died in the conflict with the flowers of that season. And so it was originally called Decoration Day, with not two, two small Ds. It wasn't even capitalized. And, um, and both the North and the South celebrated on different days. But then, because of mutual conflicts, specifically the Spanish-American War in 1898... And then World War One, and so those conflicts, you know, we were very we were a very divided country, even after the Civil War. Uh, but then, when we fought 
those two wars specifically, uh, it united us. And, and so then Decoration Day uh, became official and was capitalized and then eventually became Memorial Day. And so that's what we celebrate tomorrow, um, Memorial Day. But I want to I ask, I want to address this whole idea that um, is it right to honor those that have fought and killed other people? Is it right to honor uh, those that have served? Yeah. And I, I worded that specifically, kind of a loaded question. Um, is it right for us to honor the, the war dead? And of course, I would say a hearty amen as, as we just heard. Um, but we want, so we want to address um, we want to address this concept, and this is actually going to lead us starting next week, or you could say starting today. We are going to talk about justice. We hear a lot about justice. And we are going to specifically look at God's justice system. You know, God has a, a, a way set up. Uh, he is the supreme justice. God is. God is just. That's one of His attributes. He is a just God. And He has established... Um, even in he's established human government and in that government he has established um, in other words we're not just waiting until the day of judgment for justice to take place God has established so that he has delegated some authority to us to as best we can see to it that crimes against one another and against humanity are punished. Now again, remember remember that verse in 2 Corinthians when it says judge nothing before the time. It's not saying, you know, nobody do anything that judges in any way. No, it's, it's basically saying hold off your final take on things. Hold off final justice until the Lord comes. And, and that's when He's going to bring all things in the, you know, everything's going to come into open even the, the, the motives of men, then everyone's going to have praise of God. But in the meantime, it's not that he's saying, you know, we just have to wait for justice. He actually gives to human beings the responsibility to judge in the here and now. He has established human authority, human potentates, human justices, judges in Israel. He set up judges. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 3. And what I want to want to do as we, this is a topical message. Now topical messages have gotten a bad rap these days, and, and rightly so in some ways when people just talk about topics without quoting scripture or without expounding scripture. But what we are going to do is we're going to look at the concept of what about war? You know, we're, we're talking about honoring our war dead, those that have sacrificed their very lives for our freedoms. What about that? Does the Bible address that? Is it, you know, what about the whole concept of war? And I'm going to go back to a quote that I've quoted so many times. And uh, it's, it's not Scripture, but we are gonna, we're going to expound Scripture's as we bring out various points of this quote 
from a man named John Stuart Mill. He was an English philosopher, statesman. He was part of Parliament in, in England uh, and political analyst. And he made a very profound statement during America's Civil War. And in fact, he wrote in Harper's New Monthly Magazine in um, 1862 at the, at the beginning of America's Civil War. And uh, he was trying to drum up support for the North over in England, but he made some very profound statements regarding the whole idea of going to war. And it's, it's been debated for years. One of my favorite movies, old-time movies, I've mentioned this before, is Sergeant York. It's black and white. So probably none of you are going to watch it unless you've already watched it. But, uh, and, and it is Hollywood, so keep that in mind. But I would really, I've read two biographies about Alvin York, and what a story. Uh, this man grew up in Kentucky, I think, Dave, Kentucky or Tennessee? One of those, yeah, one of those two, right. And, uh, and you know, he got saved. He was a pretty wild, drunken, you know, he, he was a rebel rouser, getting fights, bar fights and all. And he got saved, and then World War I took place. And his pastor and the church he went to were pacifists. And, you know, he had to wrestle because I think he was, um, you know, supposed to go into to battle and become a soldier. And he really wrestled with that and initially was going to be a conscientious objector because of his faith. He said, I'm a born again believer. I'm a child of God. I can't take other lives. And, and if you read his biography, it's a really powerful story of a, of a man wrestling with these issues. Can a Christian be a soldier? It was the very thing. By the way, that's a great story because he eventually came to understand what John Mills is articulating. Actually, he had already articulated since this was Civil War. But John Mills started out this way, and he made this very clear statement. War is an ugly thing. And we would say, absolutely War is an ugly thing, and it is. But then he goes on, and he says, but not the ugliest of things. And that's where we want to we look to the Scriptures and see what does God say about government? What does God say about the idea of just fighting to defend freedoms, fighting to to defend and protect your family? I mean, what does what do the scriptures say? Because after all, we are tomorrow we are honoring those that have fought and died. But lest you lose appreciation for them, folks, they died honorably to serve our country. And they need to be memorialized. And I know those of you that are from other countries, uh, you've had people that have sacrificed their freedom or their lives as well. So we want to talk about that concept. Um, and, and so we want to, I just want to lay it out front. War is an ugly thing. And we would say amen to that. But we want to go to the second part and say, but it's not the ugliest of things. And unfortunately, or sadly, because of the entrance of sin into the world. There are times when it is necessary for people to defend their freedoms. 
We're going to look at that. So let's bow in prayer, and then we're going to jump right in. Father, help us today uh, as we move into tomorrow. Uh, Lord, help us. Give us an appreciation for those that have served, and specifically tomorrow. Uh, we're, we're grateful for all veterans, Father, but for those that have served and died for their country, especially, Father, those that have, uh, because of their death, that we are, that I am able to preach the gospel right now, that I, we're able to gather together without fear of government reprisal because America is a land of liberty. And Lord, we ask your blessing uh, and we, we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So three things we're going to do. First of all, I want to talk about government. What does God say is the purpose of government? Then secondly, we want to talk about freedom. Then secondly, we want to talk about sacrifice. Now again, this is topical, but we're going to look to the scriptures and see what do the scriptures say about these things. So Romans chapter 13, if you're there, let's begin in verse 1 because this is one of the clearest texts that articulate the purpose of government. And that is highly debated today, isn't it? A lot of people do not understand. But God actually gives credence to certain aspects of government. So let's look at verse 1, Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. Now he's not just, he's not, saying, you know, we need to submit to God and the spiritual authorities here. He's talking, and this term of higher powers speaks of government authority. It speaks of human authority. And it's literally giving some legitimacy to the fact that God sets up people over other people. Remember the centurion? We looked at this recently. Remember the centurion? Uh, that when he went to Jesus, he said, I am a man also of authority, and I say to this person, go, and he goes, and to this person, do this. The whole concept that there is authority, that we need, there are people we need to put ourselves under to a limited degree, understanding the context, that that is legitimate. That's why the Bible says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Now, we're going to see by what Paul says, that he's talking about human government here. He says, For there is no power but of God, the powers that be. Human government, specifically. The powers that be are ordained by God. So, if somebody has a problem with anybody giving them orders, you know, I don't want nobody telling me what to do. Well, folks, God has put in every one of us, we have authority. We're born with a mom and dad, and we have to obey them, right? And we're born with government leaders, local, you know, Peter even says, obey every ordinance, you know, that we are subjected to human authorities. Now, look at the, uh, it continues in verse 1. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. When you and I violate the laws of the land that are not immoral laws, by the way, this understand that there's the only absolute authority is God. In fact, there's a principle. Keep this in mind as we go through this. 
God has established human authority. And there are people we need to obey. But it is not an absolute authority. Remember there was a time in the book of Acts where the the local government authorities who Paul is saying we have to submit to commanded the apostles, don't preach in the name of Jesus Christ. Remember that? And what did they say? We have to. You know, we, we have to obey God rather than men. So whenever man's commands contradict God's, we are obligated to obey God rather than men. Keep that in mind. God never gives to a human being absolute authority. So there's a context here. So when human laws and human authority doesn't contradict God's human laws, The Bible says, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive damnation. And the text goes on, Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. Now here's where God is articulating the purpose of government. And, and he lays it out very clearly here in Romans chapter 13. In fact, look at verse 3. Rulers are not a terror to good works. Let me, let me put it this way. Rulers are not supposed to be a terror to good works. Now, there have been clearly times in history where there have been some very evil Rulers that have violated God's boundaries for government. And they've ended up harming people. But realize that that was never God's intention for human authority. He has established human authority to punish the bad and reward the good. Because that is the character of God. Now that immediately brings out all kinds of perplexing questions. Because you've got, historically, you've got some rulers that are just downright evil, right? Really. And, um, but, but it's not that we are not without help. Because when Paul wrote this, I want you to keep in mind, who was the leader of Rome? Nero. He was a great guy, wasn't he? No. He was evil. He was cruel. In fact, Paul and many of the early church would end up dying because of his hand. And yet, this is telling us that this does not mean that human authority, even bad authority, has escaped God's attention at all. So, let's let's talk about evil leaders for a minute. I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 27. Jeremiah chapter 27. Now understand, we're going back to the Old Testament, the Tanakh. And we are looking at a different economy. This is not the instructions to the church in the church age. This was instruction given to the Jews. So it was, it was a theocratic civil government. And so God... Uh, it was a theocracy at first where God was the leader and, and so 
understand there, you have to keep it in that context. But look at Jeremiah chapter 27 and verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came this word unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus saith the Lord to me, Make thee bonds and yokes, and put them upon thy neck. And send them to the king of Edom, to the king of Moab, to the king of the Ammonites, to the king of Tyrus, and to the king of Zidon, by the hand of the messengers, which come to Jerusalem, unto Zedekiah, king of Judah. That last king there, he was the king of the Jews there. God's people, verse 4. And command them to say unto their masters, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus shall ye say unto your masters. So this is God speaking now. I have made the earth, the man and the beasts that are upon the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched stretched arm, and have given it unto whomsoever it seemed meet or fit unto me. See what God's saying? He's saying, I have created mankind. I have created the earth and the kingdoms. And I have given power to those that I want to have power. Verse 6, And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Folks, Nebuchadnezzar was a very wicked king. But what God is about to say about him is startling. Unless you understand how God has worked and God works historically. Let's go back to verse 6 again. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Now this is amazing because Nebuchadnezzar was not a man of God. You know, when you think of the servant of God, you think of David or Jeremiah or Paul or Peter, you know, servants of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar was a very arrogant man and God humbled him at one point, but he was by no means a follower of Jehovah. Why would God call him my servant? Because the Bible says this in Proverbs, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. You see, God, as he said in verse 5, by my great power and by my stretched out, outstretched arm, I have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. So here's what happens. Israel was God's chosen people. He wanted them to submit to him, but there were times when they rebelled against God and God would judge them and he would use other nations to do that. That's why he's calling Nebuchadnezzar a servant. It wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar was a great worshiper of Jehovah. He was saying by my servant is, he's going to be my vessel that I'm going to chastise you, Israel. Keep that in mind. This whole idea that you know the powers that be are ordained of God does not mean that every human authority is going to be godly, God-fearing, and execute justice perfectly. Far from that. In fact, historically... 
God would judge nations by giving them political leaders and judges that were not honest and were not decent. And that would be his punishment. Because God is the ultimate judge. Listen to this. Psalm 75 repeats what we're learning here. Psalm 75, beginning in verse 6, the psalmist says, For promotion, that is the idea of elevating someone to a position of authority, for promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. That's our title next week. When we talk about God's justice system, next week we're going to see that God is the judge. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, it is full of mixture, and he poureth out of the same, but the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. In other words, God, is, God will u- often use a nation, especially with his, his children Israel, he would often use Egypt or Babylon or even Syria or Assyria to judge them and to chasten them. And in that sense, they would follow, they'd be his servants. I want you to keep that in mind because it's very easy to despair, especially in America where we have been blessed with a, we, are, we live in a land of freedom and you and I have a part in the, in the process of electing our officials Not everybody has that. But we must also remember that God is still in charge. Sometimes God will not give us good leaders. He'll give us not leaders we want, but leaders that we deserve. have to understand that. And by the way, He's still in charge. Don't forget that. Sometimes Christians look to political leaders to be our saviors. Don't do that. Also remember this. More and more I'm I'm realizing this, that God is not going to resurrect any of the the nations. He's not going to resurrect the Roman Empire on Judgment Day and judge them. He's already judged them. God deals with nations in the here and now. He judges individuals in the past and in the future. In the past... And I love this. Think about this. Remember this. He, he judges nations in the here and now. He judges individuals in the past, Calvary, and in the future, the great white throne judgment and the Bema judgment. So keep that in mind. No nation is on judgment day is going to be resurrected. God says, okay, let's get Russia together and pay for what they've done or let's, let's get the Roman Empire together. Or let's get you know, Hitler's Germany together. And No, he judges them in the here and now. And there's so, many, so much evidence. In fact, I could probably preach a whole message on that. But I want you to keep in mind that God is still on the throne. He's still in charge. I love this quote uh, by Spurgeon. You know, it's, it's one of the trickiest issues that mankind has not settled perfectly and, and true Bible believers have debated through the, down through the years is the issue of the free will of man versus the sovereignty of God. And it's, and it's been debated. God is sovereign. I love this quote from Spurgeon. 
He said, man is perfectly free. And God violates not the human will. Yet, he is as much able to rule perfectly free agents as he is to control the atoms of inert matter. It is omnipotence which compels yonder starry orbs to obey the laws which God has made and to travel in their appointed courses. But to my mind, it is even more marvelous omnipotence which leaves men free agents and controls not their will, but yet sweetly triumphs over them. That is such a good quote. God is in charge. Do we understand it? Do we get it all? No. So how can God raise up this, you know, Nebuchadnezzar? How do you even call him your servant? Only if God is sovereign and working out his plan. You and I can rest in that. So let's talk about the concept of war. War is, a, is an ugly thing. But is there ever, as John Mills in his quote, he talks about war for a good cause. Is there even such a thing as war for a good cause? I want you to listen to a couple of verses. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to go through a bunch of them. Just real quickly here, but John chapter 16 and verse 33. Jesus made an important point that I want you to keep in mind. He said, these things have I spoken unto you that you might have peace. Oh, I like that. Peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So don't, again, in the world, you shall have tribulation. Don't forget that. That hasn't ended, folks. We are going to have tribulation up until the Prince of Peace comes and brings peace. But in the meantime, where does our peace come? Again, what did he say? He said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. What an awesome thing. So no matter what befalls us, you and I can know that. And don't ever forget this. God is still on the throne. That means something. God's not up there ever pulling out his hair. We do that. You know, because we don't know what's going on. But he does. Here's another one. Psalm 46 and verse 9. Again, just talking about God's omnipotence and his ability. If he wanted to stop war. Psalm 46 and verse 9. He, Jehovah, maketh wars to cease unto the ends of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. God's aware of what's going on. It's like 2 Peter 3. We looked at that in our Bible study. Why does God allow injustice to take place? Why does God allow the very presence of evil to continue? He hasn't abandoned us. He's not slack concerning his promise of returning and setting things straight. But he is long-suffering. And don't ever forget that. That's why he hasn't returned. That's why he didn't return at 11 o'clock this morning. It's 11.30 now. That's why he didn't return. I was kind of hoping he would. I was hoping he'd return at 11. Kind of neat, you know, while we're having church and preaching and all of a sudden... 
the rapture comes, we go. But it hasn't happened yet. What's, what's, what's keeping him? He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus said this in Luke 21 and verse 9. He said, But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified. For these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. That same statement is in Matthew 24 and verse 6. And he says, but the end is not yet. That's the idea of the end is not yet by and by. In other words, God's got it figured out. But until then, there's going to be war. Where does that war come from? Don't ever blame God for that. Remember what James said in James chapter 4 and verse 1? From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? In fact, earlier in James he said, Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted of evil, neither tempteth he any man. We must not lay the blame, the fact that mankind goes to war and that there's evil in this world at the hands of God. In fact, John Mills said, As long as justice and injustice have not terminated their ever-renewing fight for ascendancy in the affairs of mankind, human beings must be willing when need is to do battle for the one against the other. That's a good statement. Folks, there are times. As long as justice and injustice have not terminated their ever-renewing fight, and it has not because the Prince of Peace has not come back, therefore human beings at times must be willing to do battle for the one against the other. Perfect example. John the Baptist is preaching, and he's preaching repentance. And all of a sudden in John in um, in Luke chapter three, people are coming. You know they're, they're smitten, they're convicted, and they want to know. You know, well, what do I have to do to show forth? You know that I'm repentant. And tax collectors came up, said, "You know, what do I have to do to show repentance?" And and then the soldiers came up. Very interesting. In Luke chapter three, the Bible says in verse fourteen. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, that's John the Baptist, saying, And what shall we do? What an opportunity. Soldiers. They're very soldiers. The fact that they are soldiers by nature, and they're asking John the Baptist, What do we do to show that we're repentant? Well, If the concept of war was ungodly all the way around and it was never, you know, the Christian should not, like Sergeant York, should never take up arms, what would John the Baptist have said? Get out of the military! What are you doing? What are you doing fighting? But notice he didn't say that. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 14, he said, first, do violence to no man. Oh, okay, so... I have to be a soldier, but I can't fight. No, that's not the idea of that. When you study that text, the idea of, the, in, the, in the statement he says, do violence to no man, was very prevalent during that time for soldiers to abuse their power and use their power corruptly to gain favors of the citizens and money and bribes and stuff. And that's the idea he's saying. it. Don't abuse your position as a soldier. He wasn't telling them, stop being soldiers. He was telling them, have integrity and don't abuse your office. He also goes on, neither accuse any falsely. 
And here's the big kicker. He says, and be content with your wages. If the very concept of soldiering were anti-God and anti-Christian, that's not what the council would be. Would it? No. Is it all right for us to honor those who have served their country valiantly? Absolutely. So, John Mills goes on, War war in a good cause is not the greatest of evil which a nation can suffer. He says, War is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. Here's the ugliest. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling which thinks nothing is nothing um, which thinks nothing worth a war is worse. In other words, you won't fight for anything. You're not willing to fight for what's right. A war to protect other human beings against tyrannical injustice. A war to give victory to their own ideas of right and good, of which is their own war carried out for an honest purpose for their free choice. He's comparing that for just people like like the Germans that were you know, just caught, came into slaughter and there was all kinds of abuses. He says this is often the means of their regeneration, their, their deliverance. I love a saying I, I saw just this week. It said, and, and this would apply not just to the American soldier, but since tomorrow's Memorial Day. The American soldier fights not because he hates who's in front of him, but he loves who's behind him. See, there's a place for... Valiant people to protect the ones they love. Let's go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I remember the first time I saw this. And I'm for, you know, you know your, your philosophy is not built on sound theology when you go into the scriptures and there's something that seems to contradict what you believe. And so you go in and you try to change what the Scriptures say instead of what you believe. That happens so many times. Now, we talked about the difference between asegesis versus exegesis. Exegesis, letting the Bible speak for itself. You and I have to be willing for the Bible to prove us wrong. You know, if there's something that you believe and you study the Scriptures and the more you study it, it's showing you that you are wrong, you and I have to be willing to change. And one preacher, I'll tell you in a minute what the take on this was. He might have been a Quaker. Look at Luke 22 and verse 36. Then said he unto them, but now, he's talking to his disciples, he that hath a purse, let him take, take it, and likewise his script. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. A sword. Maybe he means like eating utensils, and maybe there's been a corruption of the Greek word. Maybe he's talking, yeah, that's right. They, they, you know, fork and spoon. What, what's he that has no sword? Can you believe, folks? Now, I don't know about you, but I grew you know, I, I lived in the Amish community where they are total pacifists. This doesn't fit their narrative. Jesus is telling his disciples. To buy a weapon? That's what he's doing. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, His disciples then, if you read on in that text, they went and they bought some and they brought them to the Lord. 
said, Lord, we got, you know, we got the swords. And he said, something, I, I wish I had that right in front of me. I don't have that verse. But he says, it is enough. And I remember one preacher that it, it didn't fit his narrative. Because he, he's, how can that be? And so he said, that's not what Jesus was saying, that they should go out and buy a weapon to defend their families. And when Jesus said, that's enough, he was, he was rebuking them. Uh, you know, because they misinterpreted what he said. They went out and brought swords and he said, that's enough now. Like, what? That's not what the scriptures say. It is so important that you and I allow that. Now, here's the point, folks. It is honorable for us. Jesus even used it in a parable that uh, someone's not going to come in and harm your family unless they first bind the strong man. What's that imply? That the strong man is going to resist. And that's true for our nation. Folks, when there are evil people like Hitler who are bent on taking over and conquering the world and taking away the freedoms of people, it is not wrong for a nation and a people to rise up and defend themselves. By the way, speaking of Hitler, when he took over Germany, or when he conquered in Germany, when he began to ascend, if you've ever seen, and it's interesting, you look at some of the old grainy videos, It is sad to me to see the multitudes, I mean massive amounts of people at a rally where Hitler was speaking and everybody is cheering him on. The German people initially all thought that Hitler would... And I, I I am German on my mother's side. My family came, my mother's side came from Germany. But I remember, I see that and my heart breaks. Because they're all excited about the potential of what Hitler was going to do for their country in a good way. They had no idea. Eventually, it became obvious. And there's also another video of when when they came, I believe it was Auschwitz, that um, when the Allied forces came in and, and freed these concentration camps, they had the German people come by and watch and see what Hitler had done. And they were they just could not believe it. They, they denied that, it, that their government could be so evil. But there was a German pastor during that time who made this statement. His name was Martin Niemöller. He was a victim of a Nazi concentration camp. And he said this. He said, in Germany... They first came for the communists. And I didn't speak up because I wasn't communist. And then they came for the Jews. And I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists. And I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics. And I didn't speak up because I was Protestant. And then they came for me. And by that time, no one was left to speak up. You know, it is important that you and I understand. We need to pray. A country that has a strong military, first of all, a country needs to stand for the right principles. And and that needs to be our biggest concern. 
Because we are losing those principles. But I submit to you that making good people helpless does not make bad people harmless. And then I'll close with this. We were we traveled recently to Hilton Head. First time ever there, driving down south. It was a long car ride. I like car rides, but we're driving down south, going to Hilton Head. This was a couple little while ago. And we came across this road and this huge, like not professionally done, but very good quality sign, like four by eight sign, just plastered. Every, you, could, you couldn't miss it. And it said this, General Sherman and his Yankee army, terrorists, arsonists, thieves. I remember thinking, they're still fighting the Civil War. You know, it's true. I remember, I remember going, when I really got into the Civil War, I went to Westchester University for a, a lecture. Uh, it was about, I think, General McMullen, McMillan, the guy... McClellan, thank you, Dave. <laughs> and I remember in this lecture, uh, after this guy gave this talk, and all of a sudden they were talking, and these people are so passionate, uh, like one way or the other, and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Our Civil War ended over 100 years ago, and they're still fighting it. It's, it's, it's ironic, but it's sad. But I want to remind you, folks, that there are things worth fighting for in our country. The concept of, a, of, of a, a military is tragic, but necessary because of the heart of man. Men are evil. Think of, well, I'm not going to mention what's going on in the, the Ukraine. But evil men, and, and let me, in fact, let me close with that, that one quote because it is so true. As long as justice and injustice have not terminated their ever-renewing fight for ascendancy in the affairs of mankind, human beings must be willing when need is to do battle for the one against another. the other. You and I need to pray for our military. You and I need to pray for the young men that we know in our church, connected, that are soldiers defending our freedoms. We need to pray that God will have mercy on America. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it's, it's, it is grievous that the heart of man is desperately wicked. But we know, Father, that because evil exists in, in the world, we will have tribulation. I pray, Father, that we would be of good cheer because you have overcome the world. We look forward to that day when the Prince of Peace will come and establish peace. But Father, in the meantime, help us to understand that there's another battle going on. The battle for souls. That there are souls headed to a Christless eternity. That Father, we are soldiers of the cross. And so help us as good soldiers to endure hardness. Help us to serve you. Help us to stand against the wiles of the devil. Lord, We look forward to when you will give us that ultimate rest. In the meantime, have mercy on America. And we ask your blessing in Jesus' precious name. Amen.